I didn't write this. Go on. Male grooming. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't look at me now. Don't I, look at me. The two of I them. Was, the two of them. I was absolutely going for a little velvet number, which I'm prone to. <laughs> and then I went to the shop and said, she's a better put on it jacket, I suppose, you know? And then I saw Gary arrive in like an extra from Miami Vice. <laughs> Hi there, you're very welcome to the very first all-in live roadshow here on Joe, backed, of course, by AIB. I'm here in the green room of the Chocolate Factory in Dublin 1, where we have a pretty sweet lineup for you this evening. We'll be casting an eye forward to the business landscape of 2020. And on the bill this evening, we have Maximum Media head honcho Niall McGarry and East Coast Bakehouse boss Alison Kowser. We'll be asking them to cast an eye into their commercial crystal ball to tell us about the opportunities and challenges they foresee ahead for Irish business in the next 12 months or so. After that, we have a trailblazer interview with a man whose company is set to sell 25 million bottles of Vitit in 18 different countries before the year is out. Yes, it's Vitit founder Gary Lavin. Now, before all that, why not hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast and YouTube? You will, of course, find us on Twitter at allin underscore business. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook. We are pretty much everywhere. And you can contact us at any time with the hashtag allinbusiness. <laughs> right. Showtime. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. Hi, everyone. You're very welcome here to the Chocolate Factory for the first ever All In live roadshow on Joe, backed by AIB. Now, we all know why we're here this evening. Either you have a business, you work for a business, you're investing in a business, and you want to know what's on the way in Irish business in 2020. So let's answer that question for you this evening, shall we? And here to help me do just that, we've got the man behind Maximum Media, the most successful independently owned digital media company in Ireland. They're also taking on the UK market. And we have the woman who built and then sold Jacob's Fruit Fields, the company behind some of our best-loved food favourites here in Ireland. Now she's busy running East Coast Bakehouse. Please give a very warm welcome to Niall McGarry and Alison Kowser. very welcome you too. I'm going to jump straight in. I think probably the best place, the only place to start a conversation about Irish business in 2020 is the B word, Brexit. What can we expect? What's going oh, to happen? Do we have to? Um, I'm afraid so we might as well get the pain out of the way first. Um, yeah, I, I think um, yet again we have another D-Day, which turns out not to be a D-Day today, um, with the House of um, the, the, par- the Parliament in the UK. Um, we're in this never-ending spiral of uncertainty, and um, I think the challenge for Irish business next year, particularly, is that uh, while we've seen this consumer confidence graph begin to dip, we haven't really seen it happening at market level, at consumer level yet. Um, I think the challenge is to see can we continue that level of um, of, of sales with with, un, with the uncertainty that's there, um, because it has to start hitting at some point. So far, it hasn't really, and I think we're all delighted with that. Mm. But let's see when when the reality begins to dawn next year. Not, you know, I think there's lots of opportunities too, but uh, I think it's it's impo- impossible to avoid. We are obsessed with it as a nation. Uh, I don't think the UK actually realizes how obsessed we are about it. I think we're more obsessed about it than they are. Um, but yeah, it's uh, and obviously you're both in uh, very different industries, but. I don't think any industry can really afford to ignore Brexit. Do you, Niall, it's no, on your mind? No, we've probably built our entire editorial strategy in the UK around Brexit, so I hope it kind of the uncertainty goes on us just a small bit longer, try and drive it a bit more. <laughs> um, I think that what you're looking at at the moment, I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk that there's still down no-deal planning in the UK, which is a good sign. Um, a lot of money been used to kind of plan for no deal when the more likely outcome is there going to be some there is potentially going to be some sort of deal obviously from our perspective we're very very keen on a second referendum and the idea of putting it back to the people um, because what I'd love to happen clearly from I think everyone in the room here would be like to see the United Kingdom stay as part of the European Union Um, so yeah look we'll have to wait and see but I think that there will probably be some sort of deal and I think we can all probably move on a little bit it's definitely going to present challenges I mean even with I think a lot of people are unsure of what does a deal look like and what does a deal mean and we're already starting to see that it's going to have a big impact on 
the union. I think United Ireland becomes a much more distinct possibility as part of that. I know an awful lot of people would like to see that, and that potentially brings economic challenges at the start, but potentially economic benefits longer term. So I think for businesses in Ireland, I mean, I think it's carry on as normal. I mean, I think that. You know, we can get, I wouldn't stop uh, if someone's looking to expand their business or looking to take their business or looking to start a business. I wouldn't let Brexit get in the way. We're always going to live through economically challenged times. We've had huge challenges in the past as recently as, you know, the last 10 years has, hasn't been the best place in the world to do business in Ireland. So I think it's a case of whatever the idea is, just keep going and whatever will be, will be. Brexit will sort itself out. It's undeniably... A, a big mistake from the United Kingdom, driven by false and misinformation spread by social media. But it's the new reality now, so the sooner we can all move on with it, the better. And I think that um, I think the opportunities are still going to absolutely be there. Mm. You know, if Northern Ireland had took Theresa May's deal, if they had backed that, that would have been an unbelievable opportunity for Northern Ireland because they would have been the other English-speaking country on the edge of Europe and could have done what the Republic has done. So um, we'll have to wait and see, but I think there's great opportunities for Irish business as we head to the 2020s, as we head to a totally disrupted new age. Um, and Brexit will just be part of that, but great opportunities for everybody still. As someone who's in media, what do you think of Brexit anxiety potentially being ratcheted up, shall we say, by the media? Surely that has to have some effect on people who may be out there, maybe even in this audience right now, thinking they wanted to start a business and feeling like maybe things have been scuppered a little bit for them by this Brexit fear that's out there. Yeah, I think ultimately, like, you can read into lots of different polls about consumer confidence and stuff like that, and they're up and they're down and they're this way and that way. And it's all, it's all really down to people's interpretation. If they have an opportunity to set up a business and they feel the market conditions are right, Brexit may, may not impact on it significantly. Um, so I'd still say, as I said, to go with that good instinct. But ultimately, the media, the media caused Brexit, I think is the first thing to say. If you look at the UK, the big profound impact for me when we went across to the UK was the fact that the media actually dictates the landscape. We saw a whole load of Boris Johnson advisors arriving in Dublin one day for talks, and they literally knocked about three newspapers out of the back of the car as they got out, because the whole country is dictated to by print media and it's led it's led to brexit obviously it's led to um, a huge amount of uncertainty i mean the uk is very very interesting in that there's two very very dominant parties that are polar opposites where in ireland we've two dominant parties that are exactly the same thing so there's actually not an awful lot it, it's a very very different country but ultimately the media landscape in the uk is needs to be to disrupt it that's what we're trying to do because the legacy media in the UK have really made it a very, very divided society. And it's not as easy as left and right. It's not as easy if you're a Guardian reader or you're a Sun reader. There's so many elements to it. So the media have an absolutely huge part to play in terms of how we move on from that. Will traditional media, will print media take that challenge on? I'm not so sure. Paul Daver is still involved in the Mail newspaper to some degree, still wields influence. So I don't know. But like ultimately, people need to become more global in their outlook and not necessarily get as fastened in on local media to tell them what's happening because clearly you know it's, it's misguided in an awful, in an awful of ways i would agree with that not i mean even from a manufacturing perspective aside from the media piece yes brexit is a disaster in lots of ways but i think what it has done is it's given so many companies a bit of a kick up the ass to say look you can't continue to rely on your nearest neighbor you can't take the sort of comfortable route of dealing with the uk same language you know we think it's the same That's culture you feel very strongly about Alison, isn't it the need yeah, for I, I think a global the, outlook the, the idea of a global outlook outlook and deciding that we're not going to do what we've always done and we're not going to do the, the, the thing that's the, you know, relatively uh, comfortable to do but, but look abroad, look further look, look global um, and that's tough and it's difficult but it's really what we should be doing anyway mm. um, so if Brexit has done anything I think it has forced Irish industry and Irish media and everybody to say we've got to look bigger um, and we can't rely on FDI companies to come in and take the global space but as, as indigenous Irish businesses we have to take that space on uh, fight for it and get out and, and, and stake that claim our, ourselves which I think is something that that, yeah, lots of Irish companies are now doing on the back of Brexit. Mm. And uh, Brexit aside, <coughs> with the lull, <coughs> excuse me, with the lull in consumer confidence at the moment, uh, I know we were saying earlier that it hasn't quite hit spending yet. Do you anticipate that it will hit spending next year in 2020? It's difficult to say. I mean, economists always have on the one hand and on the other, and there's always two answers to, to that question, and either way they'll both be right. Um, 
the challenge really, I think, is much more global in terms of what's going to happen next year around China and trade wars. Um, there's lots of stuff happening with the US. I mean, we've seen this year, uh, this week rather, um, Irish companies now, because of the trade wars with the with the US, are, are starting to suffer in terms of dairy going into the US and, and other product categories. So yeah, I think there's a bit of a global issue. Uh, confidence is going gonna, is gonna to be affected. But I think that's where nimble Irish companies that have the ability to look further and um, particularly to innovate are going to really succeed. So if things are looking a bit bleak on the global scene, um, don't do what you did yesterday, do something different. Uh, that's when the disruptor is going to come in and, and really make a difference. Um, and that really forces us to take risks. And, and I think when there's that amount of change happening in, in our, in our um, ecosystem, whatever businesses we're involved in, that really is the imperative to start making change happen. Um, and that's, that's really sometimes when the best ideas come forward, when, when we okay. are really uh, challenged to, to change. And I find it interesting that um, uh, Alison, understandably, is calling for a more global outlook. But Niall, I know you feel very strongly on the need to innovate at home and to develop, especially regionally. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, Brexit kicks off a whole host of stuff. So why has Ireland done well in the last 20, 30 years? Because it's a free, open economy in Western Europe, English-speaking, highly educated audience and, or population, and that's, that's all great stuff. I think what's happening is is a very, very interesting kind of new challenge to business owners in Ireland, many of which are in the room tonight, which is that foreign direct investment is absolutely to be welcomed and it's creating jobs and it's creating employment, which is obviously money going through the economy. And that's fantastic. And we, 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 need to do, we need to continue to do that because we don't really have any other choice because you can't just flick a switch as a country and start again because, you, you know, you'll, get, you'll be killed. But we have to look at a scenario here whereby because all of the global uh, hubs are based here from an EMEA headquarters, Dublin is now an EMEA headquartered city. So we're not comparable with Leeds, we're not comparable with Manchester, we're not comparable with Liverpool, we're not comparable with many other cities that have one to two million people. So if you're a national business doing business in Ireland, but you're headquartered in Dublin, you are absolutely going to be and are about to be or are currently fundamentally challenged um, because Dublin is an EMEA headquartered city. So we have 7,500 to 8,000 square foot here in the middle of Dublin, right? And I recently just reached out and had a little look and see what's out there. And I swear to God, as soon as I looked out there, I came straight back again and went, Jesus, where we are is, is unbelievable. Because I had a look at 10,000 square foot, and I think a lot of people in the room will feel this today, the old Twitter headquarters over Huckletree. And the quoting rent for that was 135,000 a month for 10,000 square feet in the middle of Dublin. So if you were to go to Leeds, and I know this, we have an office, we have an office in Manchester of 3,500 square foot, 12th four story building, Really, really great space in the city centre. Costs us about eight grand a month for three and a half thousand square foot in the middle of Manchester. So, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, you know, that's a northern city in England, and not set up as advantageously as, as Dublin from a foreign direct investment perspective. But ultimately, the downside to foreign direct investment is what are the initiatives going to be brought in? Because this isn't about bashing the government. This is about just saying, guys, you have an issue here. We have a challenge. If you're going to bring FDI investment into Ireland through low corporation tax. What are you going to do for Irish businesses that are now trading just in Ireland and need to be based in the country's capital or potentially in, into the regions? Because this is becoming a real, real issue. You know, cost of labour has been driven through the roof uh, again because of this. So we, everyone knows that the public see the disadvantages from a housing perspective and the rental market and the rental challenge. But ultimately, from a business perspective, there's huge challenges in that the, you know, jobs for life are actually back, which is a good thing and a bad thing, because obviously my parents grew up in, in a job for life type Ireland where dad worked in, well, you know, was then Telecom Air and was now Air, and mum was a nurse, and you know, they had their jobs, but, but, you know, we went through a scenario here in Ireland where people are two years, three years, and ultimately were kind of moving up the food chain and, and doing better for themselves. And I think you need a combination of both. But jobs are life because the, the, the FDI companies are putting people away under lock and key for the next 30 years on cozy numbers, which is great and good for them. But it presents challenges to the entrepreneurial community in Ireland. They are now, but they're not when you look at what happened last week with a thousand FDI jobs out the window. Um, out of work? Out the window. The redundancies we saw last week on two companies going out of business, F FDI, in terms of the local jobs. A thousand jobs gone. Yeah. Uh, huge, huge issues in terms of uh, local economy, both yeah, but, in, in yeah, Galway. So and, okay, but if there's a thousand uh, people recycled back into the workforce, are the SME community of Ireland going to be able to provide for them if they do not have 
Well, you're a big employer on the East Coast, so... Well, we've 50 people. SME I mean, hat clearly on. not, not competing, but, I mean, that, that question of, of, you know, get out of Dublin, um, that was something that when we looked to set up East Coast Bakehouse... Um, I'll be, I'll be honest, I probably would have preferred if it was based in Dublin because I live in Dublin, but I'm up and down the M1 and now every day. Um, but actually, the, the place we're sitting in now, this is a chocolate factory that was probably one of the very first um, food industries based in Dublin. Um, the, uh, I think the, the brands that were built out of here, we did at one stage on with the Jacob Fruitfield business, Silverman's and Double Center and whatever. So it's great to see this building being repurposed to, to something. But ultimately, um, there's very little space available uh, in Dublin uh, on a manufacturing basis. That's why we went to Trochada. So we now have a, a fantastic uh, workforce available to us. And it's only an hour from Dublin, as they say. And, and the reality is the costs are lower, the rates are lower, yeah. um, the, the availability of, of services is much better. Um, the quality of life of the people who work with us because they live locally is, you know, no long commute down the M1. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we've got to see more of. That's, you know, taking businesses out of what is a completely saturated environment in the city yeah. um, and, and allowing people to work in, in scenarios that are so much better for yeah. their no, daily I, lives. Yeah, I do agree. But obviously some people are going to have to be based in the capital. And obviously we opened an office in Goa recently. And, and again, the standard of applicant was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Actually a bit eye-opening in terms of the skills gap here in Dublin. But let's say those thousand people that you mentioned, as I said, we need to have facilities for those people to be able to be brought back into the SME community. And why challenge to lay down to the government or to, to, to the decision makers, the you know, future kind of decision makers of Ireland is we need to create a level playing field for SME operators in Ireland. Because at the moment, it's not. It's FDI lust and it's, we're not thinking of the SME community. And they are ultimately going to be the backbone of the community. They're the community that are going to be there, you know, because I think I touched on that before. Like, we want to welcome FDI, but ultimately it has to be done in tandem mm -hmm. with a much stronger, cohesive strategy to promote SME culture in Ireland. Because I don't agree that it's the best little country to do business in. I believe there's an awful lot more that can be done. There's too much red tape. We're only just moved into single director companies. Like that archaic strategy that you had to rope your poor grandmother into setting up a business with you because you needed two directors. That's only just gone by, by the... You know, so, so much more has to be done. And I think it's a real challenge now. I think it's really hitting home now because we grew up with this around us, right? So if you were going to Manchester in the morning and you realised Intel, HubSpot, LinkedIn, Twitter, and on and on, our Salesforce, we're all there, you'd go in going, who's left? So my thing is, we've grown up with around us and we welcome it, but it's like, what can we do so that SMEs can be attractive from a talent perspective and can, be, can compete? And then what are the potential tax initiatives you could bring in to apply the exact same logic to get some certain Dublin companies to move to the regions? Because I think Alison mentioned she's found reason to it, but I think you should be incentivized. And it's not about getting handouts. It's not about grants. It's about new initiatives from a taxation perspective to get Dublin companies to potentially relocate if that's something that they feel they can, they, they can do or they're in a position to do it. But definitely, it's a challenge that's only really, really, but it's going to get into the 2020s. That, to me, would be a big thing that aspiring entrepreneurs and current entrepreneurs are going to need to be aware of. Is Dublin going to be a place to build a national company? Well, you both spoke a lot there about um, jobs and, and the jobs economy. Um, so let's stick with that and expand a little bit. Finding the right talent and then keeping the right talent. A challenge always, but particularly in 2020, do you think? Yeah, I'm recruiting at the moment, actually, for a, a marketing person, if there's anybody out there who's interested in joining us uh, in a marketing role. I'm, I'm also uh, looking for a new product development manager. Now um, that you said that when you get <laughs> on with CVs tomorrow. Uh, but it was interesting, the conversation with the, um, with the recruitment agency. So on one of the jobs, I went out and, and, and uh, just put it out on LinkedIn and, I have to say, got a, a very very broad um, number of applicants, but none of them, really not even one, was, was fitting the brief, which was kind of interesting for me. Um, but what dealing with a... They hadn't read the brief. Um, they read one one line on the on the brief, but they hadn't read the, the job description um, mm -hmm. to indicate the breadth of experience I was looking for and the ability to do different roles as opposed to one. I mean, everybody, almost every single person out of 40 applications wants to be a digital marketeer. So I'll send them all over to you now. Um, but they weren't able to do what I wanted them to do, which send was lots them to of Facebook. <laughs> um, but interestingly, the conversation with subsequently with the recruitment agency was as much about now when you get people in to do the interviews, Alison. You have to understand that I know you're interviewing them, but they're interviewing you. 
because the talent sure. um, uh, deficit that's out there at the moment is that you will not have a broad bank of people to talk to who are desperate to work for you. You will have a number of people who are half interested in working for you and when you sit down to talk to them, your job is to convince them to join you and that is a completely new scenario, I think, than what we were dealing with five years ago. Um, so that's a really interesting perspective as an employer to say how do you pitch your business to a prospective employee? How do you work into the job uh, elements that are satisfying for both parties that, that everybody can you know walk out of the, the office at, after after a full day's work and feel that everybody's got something out of it as opposed to just being there and earning a crust so i think that's the difference now in the in the the, the landscape that we're dealing with from an employee perspective i think it's probably ultimately going to end up with better um, more more um more enhanced more harmony within within business the people work there because they want to work there not because desperately they you know they, they it's the only place they can get a job so yeah. uh, it's better just an interesting them. landscape it's new it's different and, and I hope it gets us to a better place. And Niall, I know that I noticed that you tweeted the other day something I found interesting. Um, no cover letter equals bin, which I personally found it interesting that you would even need to tweet that. But obviously, it's something you've come across a lot, and it must be frustrating. But I couldn't believe that you would even need to say that. Why isn't everyone automatically sending you a cover letter? Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's been a while since we we I was looking for I'm looking for six or seven people in Galway to kind of because that's where I'm based a lot of the time to get stuff from my brain and get it into the ether and get it out there because a lot of stuff is kind of getting clogged up here, and then I have to go to Dublin or London to execute. So. Why I said cover letter is because that to me is where someone separates them from some uh, from each other, right? And like, what's funny is from a recruitment perspective, you you break your proverbial whatever to get a one-one potentially instead of a two-one. Like you're really gunning for it or whatever. Two-one is fine for me. You're, I'm just saying a lot of people, and then they just let just just let themselves down when it goes to the actual bit of applying for the job. So the cover letters where candidates separate themselves. And I would 100% rather meet someone with a 2-1 or a 2-2 and a brilliant cover letter than someone has put in no effort and has a 1-1. Fact. And like, yet these people, and again, they've just not been told. I think this is probably incumbent now on universities, right. to be honest so with you. So that's the disconnect. It's not, it's not a given out. It's a case of they're not been told. But if you're going to put so much effort into trying to get that higher grade, and then you let yourself down, you, you know, the cover letter is just phenomenally important to separate yourself from everybody else. Where you want to be, because again, this has been a bit of a new thing for me, getting back into the recruitment. And I said to the guys, look, I want to put my email address on it. I want to get the, I want to get the CV straight to me. Because well, if you you're... Got, and then you got 600 of them? Yeah, at least 600. And that's the big thing about Galway, mm -hmm. is that all of a sudden, the right company in the right city, wealth of talent, which, which is something I'll come back to. But yeah, that's going to be a bit of work to go through. But what was unbelievably interesting was, um, was unbelievably interesting with cover letters is you want a prospective employer, and I'm sure people who are employers in the room here, you want to be looking forward to going into an interview. Mm. You want to be going, oh, that person's in it half too, can't wait. Because people make your business. End of story. So people have a brilliant idea for a business. It's the people that will make it either this big or this big. People that have an unbelievable business, it's the people that will, it's the wrong people who will potentially affect its, its success and create its demise. So, like, and it's something that when you're in business, you can kind of get into this thing of, oh, I'm not, I don't want to be on the cold, force any, cold face anymore. I don't want to necessarily meet, front. and I'm like, I, I, I kind of ideally do want to meet front. No, it's something you can't physically get around to. But staff are the embodiment of your company, and you have got to persevere to get the right people in. Because what they did you say to success. me the last time we spoke about this? Hire, hire slow, hire slow, fire quick. No? Yeah. Is that it? Which is not always easy to implement, but um, definitely, yeah, if you can, if you can. But you, you can't, you know, you just, legally, you can't do the second thing that easily. So, you know, um, it's, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great notion, but yeah, hire, hire slowly. Although I did see some horrendous thing. You know, there's a funny Twitter account, State of LinkedIn. And it was just someone had a tweet about someone going for a coffee with them for the last five years and they don't realise they're actually being interviewed for this, this imaginary job and they're five years <laughs> deep interviewing these people. So I think you need to, there needs to be a line in terms of it. But if you can, absolutely take the right time to get the right candidate because it's an awful lot easier to take that time than, than have to reverse the decision in, in down the line. I want to talk now about something both of you will know a little about. You mentioned earlier, um, Alison, that everybody wants to be a dig digital marketer. Mm -hmm. And certainly, Niall, you'll know a lot about um, influencers, Insta-influencers, and every other platform has its influencers. 
I was going to say, is that the future of digital marketing? But that seems a bit of a, of a redundant question. I think we could probably agree it, it, it's not the future, it's the present. If it's the present, what's the yeah, future of I mean, digital I, marketing? I think there's a real challenge now for, um, for both marketeers and brand owners and business owners and consumers. Um, I mean, I started working 35 years ago in marketing, and that was, you know, it was a very set discipline. It was something that you went to college for, you understood, you, you, you did all the work on, and then and then you kind of came out and you started managing a, a brand. Um, and now it's very different. Now everybody's a marketeer, everybody's a content developer, everybody's a photographer, um, and potentially everybody's an influencer. So where does that leave the filter? You know, where does that leave the consumer uh, in terms of believing what they're seeing? And and where's the 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 ability to to you know, as an industry, it used to be you know, it used to be I suppose uh, controlled or, or 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 whatever by the ASAI, the Advertising Standards Authority. So and I know that's still there, but. I just think there's a there's a bit of a vacuum now. Um, if everybody believes their peers and if everybody believes believes influencers, where's where's the filter that actually says you know this is reality? You're not being sold a pup here because uh, you know there are some standards. Uh, and I just think it's an interesting phase for marketeers now because I think they've lost that space. I guess people would probably trustwise turn to digital media platforms. Yeah, well, I just want to say, before you go any further, I find Fit It really, really nice. And, and, uh, and I'll trump you with East Coast Bakehouse, yeah. okay? <laughs> so, Alice is pl plugging her own business. I was actually paid to do this tonight. <laughs> so, there you go, Gary, there's your plug. Um, yeah, I mean, for most, we're, well, I suppose I'm a little bit compromised because uh, I absolutely, what we're seeing in the UK is we're working with large-scale influencers all of the time. So what we see is brands who want to bring on an influencer so we, we often, so we're launching a new show tomorrow with Hotels.com around the Champions League. And the talent is what kind of influencers are referred to. So we've got Patrice Evra, Marcel Desai, a whole host of real top level footballers. So in that instance, the brand is helping us hire these Champions League winners to do content for us in the UK around the Champions League. So it's almost like a really nice merry-go-round at the moment in terms of how that's working because those people, you know, clearly not, aren't going to be cheap if you've won Champions League medals and stuff like that. So we're working heavily with influencers in the UK. The thing with the UK is there's genuine influencers over there. So people like KSI, if they were on the Jonathan Ross or the Graham Norton couch, an awful lot of people wouldn't know who they are, yet to another group of people, they'd be like, oh my God, that's the most famous person in the room. I don't know who anybody else is. So there's genuine credibility in some of the influencers in the UK. I think the challenge has been in Ireland is some of the influencers in Ireland have obviously brought a hard time on themselves by maybe their lack of credibility. We've had like instances of people buying fake Instagram followers and so on and so forth. And, you know, the whole bloggers unveil thing, which, you know, a lot of people probably went, to, went, went a bit too far. But like, there's a real mixed feeling around influencer marketing in Ireland, where hey, there isn't actually around the world. And Are the we big, just too small? We're a little bit too small. Well, I think, it's, I think it's ultimately someone has to have a definable reason to be influential. And I think in Ireland, we just jumped on, oh, well, I deci I've decided to follow this course of action. And I think it's very, very worrying that people in an education process now, so teenagers, in terms of, I saw recently, I think the, the, there was a question asked to, um, young women in terms of coming through school, what you want to be. I think doctor was number one and influencer was number two. So like that's obviously quite worrying because the thing, the trick, the, the reason with, you know, why I think it's a bad career path is ultimately it's very like modeling. It's not sustainable for a long period of time because you lose your credibility, you lose your influence. And then where are you? And I think anyone getting into a career, well, I'll be saying to Max, my 10 year old is, you need to be build, are you going to be able to get money from this at 60? Like that's the benchmark for what you should be getting into from a career perspective. Because we now live in an area where everybody's career could become significantly reduced because of the disruption of change. So but, but Max is going to have four or five careers. Sorry? My, Max is going to have four or five careers. My kids are going to have four or five yeah. careers. They're not going to be doing the same things. Uh, that, they, that they put on their CAO, yeah, I hope. Yeah, yeah. No, you're God, right. God help and, them. I and hope there they is don't. brand new careers in this space. I think a lot of people obviously have seen this guy, Aaron Connolly, who's just started playing soccer for Ireland, 19-year-old kid from Galway. And the first question everyone's asked, what's his story with his accent? Why hasn't he got a big bogger accent like everyone else from Galway? And it's like, this guy has grew up with YouTube. He's grew up with mm -hmm. Premier League stars. He's only yeah. 19. It's the world changing in front of us. And people don't really realise that it's actually, now it's starting to come to fruition where the soccer players from Ireland that have slightly global accents. It's, it's mad stuff, but it's, it's all coming through. Well, guys, we're going to wrap this particular conversation here. 
Um, we will, of course, be coming back to you later for, for the one to watch. If you're not familiar with the show, the one to watch is the who or what in Irish business at the moment. Uh, these guys think is worth keeping an eye on and why. But for the moment, I'm going to leave it there. I'll talk to you again in a little bit. Can I get a please get a big round of applause for Niall and Alison? Joe presents All In together with AIB backing Irish business. Moving straight along, we're next going to hear from a man who lost, at one point in his career, lost his car, lost his house, almost lost his business, and brought it all back from the brink of a commercial cliff to go on to be the biggest selling, the number one drinks, health drink brand in Ireland, Vitit. It is, of course, Gary Lavin. You've got your uh, branded bottle with you, of yeah, course. Well, if, you never if, miss an opportunity. That's Mark, Niall, the good businessman. If Niall has his, I'm having mine, yeah. <laughs> um, Gary, we're going to go way, way back to the start of your career okay. to start this conversation. You were 23. You were on the cusp of an amazing rugby career. You got a knee injury that ruled you out indefinitely, forever, and had to come back from that. Now, they say that you learn more from failure than success, and obviously an injury isn't a failure in a sense. It's not your fault you got an injury, but psychologically, that must have been just crushing. And to then go on and start Fit Hit. Yeah, when, when I was a kid, um, I wasn't really good at the national quiz, the, what I call the leaving cert. I wasn't great at studying. I was pretty talented at sports. Um, I was always the, the biggest and strongest kid in my class. <clears throat> so. My, I had one focus, I wanted to play for Ireland. And uh, I was over in Harlequins, I got a contract for those guys, pl- played a couple of times for Leinster, and I was living my dream, getting paid for what I always wanted to do. It was a long time ago, now it was uh, just after the amateur era, and first year in, in professional era, and I was playing for pre-season for about two months, and uh, I banged my knee up and um, lost my contract. Um, and. I remember how devastated I was because it was all I knew. It was basically, this is my route to the future. I had nothing else in my mind. Um, But at the time, I had been buying and selling uh, the odd protein and creatine to my friends. Um, This is back when men didn't spend money on themselves. Um, But I remember, um, it's uh, Harlequins is based just beside Twickenham, and I remember I was so devastated. Anyone who's lost a job will be able to tell you this this moment. Uh, I was. I ghost walked for maybe a mile or two, and I ended up underneath Twickenham, and I basically said to myself, I'm never going to put my future in anybody else's hands again. I don't want everyone to feel this way again. Um, I had been buying and selling a a few uh, products myself and selling them to my friends, and I just decided that I was going to start doing that. and then I went broke two or three times after that, <laughs> trying to get it done. It all went from there. Mm. Yeah. So you started VidHit in uh, 2000. You would have been about 28, I think. Um, it wasn't easy, though. It wasn't, you know, you didn't walk straight into success. There were some hard times at the start. Yeah, no, f- sports gave me um, a false sense of security. I thought I could do everything. I thought I was bulletproof. And I went out and made a lot of mistakes. How, was I to do it again now? I would not waste about 10 years you know, going broke, I would have worked for another company, maybe East Coast Bakehouse if they wanted to give me a, give me a job. Um, but you can learn a lot from other people. But I had this thought process, um, whether it was right or wrong, I'm not sure. I just about got enough points to go to college. I didn't want to go to college because I didn't want to get into that circle of um, you know, going to college, getting a job, getting dependence, and um, having that security. So I always wanted to push myself and put myself out into the coalface because, you know, if you end up with two or three kids in a Labrador, it's much harder to give up your job than it is. And, and I always knew that I wanted to work for myself. So I, I just kind of put myself into that, into that space. And VidHit now makes sense. I mean, we, times there, there has never been a better time for a wellness company of any kind. Uh, but 2000 was 
a much different time. I don't think, you know, a lot of us don't don't think of 2000 in, in that sense, but Facebook didn't come along until 2007. So that conversation I just had with Alison and Niall about digital marketing and influencers, etc., none of that even existed in 2000. It must have been very hard to find your feet with wellness at that time. It was, especially in Ireland. You know, mm-hmm. there wasn't the amount of people you see running on the beaches in the morning at 5 a.m. staying fit. There was really no fitness industry here. There was two or three gyms in Dublin. Uh, for a population of a million people. Like, it really wasn't, wasn't a big thing. But I had come from a rugby background where I knew that sugar was bad and I knew the lack of exercise was bad. So I was, my, my whole principle was I wanted to create a brand that would look as good as all the sugary brands on the shelf and taste just as good, if not better. And that was the basic, very simple principle. I always try and keep business as a really, really simple thing. So my idea was if I can succeed with that and people can have a sugary drink and try my drink and then go, actually, there's a lot less sugar in that. Why don't I just switch? I I thought it would be an obvious switch. I didn't think it would take 12 to 13 years to break even in the company. So uh, that hurts a little bit more. But um, yeah, it was something that I really, really believed in. And, you know, we have six flavors now and two of the flavors are actually 20 years old and we didn't sell a bottle. I mean, I was driving around Ireland in a branded Jeep for years, calling into spa shops and coming back then a month later, the product was still on the shelf. Um, And that's packaging, which maybe we'll talk about later. But the product was the same now today as it was 20 years ago. But, you know, the people weren't there and the packaging just wasn't right at the time. So I had to change a lot to get it to what you see today. And you mentioned there 12 years um, of ups and downs before it really became successful. Uh, You also mentioned earlier something that really struck me. You said that at one point in your life, solicitors' letters were the norm. How did you keep going? I know you came from you know, competitive sports, so that must have helped. But how did you keep going, even in terms of mental health, with all that, with things collapsing around you? Yeah, I don't know if I ever got fully depressed, but I was certainly on the edge of it. Um, and it's funny, to this day, I still don't open letters. I had nice. such a tough time. Um, I lost my house. Um, I, well, I was, a, I was an investor. I had, like, I had more than one house, but <laughs> it wasn't great. So losing more than one, I don't know if it hurts more. But yeah, I lost my house. Uh, I remember a um, guy jumped over my gate to take my car away. Um, I had all that. But the one thing I kept remembering was just, you know, it's not how hard you fall, it's how hard you get up. Or how fast you get up, rather. And uh, I definitely believe that sports gave me that self-belief that I'm, I'm going to make it, you know, because I read an interesting stat recently. Actually, I was in a cab and uh, the cab driver says to me, he says, oh, do you have any kids? I said, actually, I have a really young girl. Uh, my, my little girl is um, one and a half. And he says, oh, I've got a few girls. He said, do you know this stat about, uh, about women playing sports? And I said, no. And he said, over 90% of women on the boards in America played competitive sports. And I was like, that can't be true. And then I Googled it, <clears throat> and Dr. Google told me it was true. So I started thinking about you know, what I would teach my daughter and what we should be teaching girls and kids in general. And then I realized that that's probably why I had that self-belief, because I got dropped regularly. Mm-hmm. I got injured regularly. Lost uh, a match regularly. You know, yeah. I, I, I lost my job because I, you know, I, I had an injury. So at a very young age, it teaches you to lose. And you know, I never, ever nailed it uh, and called it a failure. I was, you know, all of those little setbacks, you know, you can, they're just a step in a ladder that you can keep, keep jumping up on. And that's kind of the way I looked at it. But um, it was close there for a while. You know. It was close and you brought it back from the brink and the way you did that was to get in your car. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, we had... Um, get in your Jeep, rather. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my branded Jeep, yeah. I still have that. Um, we... Uh, my business partner, um, Ian, um, was good at things that I wasn't good at. So um, I wasn't good at uh, um, doing accounts and that kind of stuff. And he basically said to me one day, he said, listen, I want you to come see this forensic accountant. We sat down with her and she looked at me and she said, I've seen 23 businesses in this state. I've rescued one and you're going to be the second that I'm going to rescue. She said, you're going to have to let go all your staff, your sales guys. She said, Gary, you're going to have to get out of your ivory tower, your south side <laughs> ivory tower, I think she called it. And she said, you've got to get out and sell. So the hardest thing I ever had to do was fire these guys, you know, but I hadn't made a wage in a year and and I was just reluctant to give give bad news. So um, I had to let the the three guys go and uh, I jumped in my car and I drove all around the country and I found that I actually really loved selling. I loved being out there um, and, and meeting my customer. And that just changed everything. Within three months, we'd broken even. And within a year, I personally sold it into maybe just short of 3,000 accounts. 
And I brought it down to a really simple thing. I call it ladybird economics. Just keep things really, really simple. And I basically said, look, for every case I sell, I make a couple of euros. Then if I sell 10 of those, you know, you multiply by 10. And, and, if, and for, in order for the company to keep going, I need to sell 500 quids worth a week. And I just started that way. And then as we got bigger, um, then I'd say, okay, I have a sales rep. I said, now you have X amount to sell every week. If you don't hit those figures within six months, I'm sorry, but you're giving yourself out of a job. It's not, not me, it's, your, it's you. So we put that kind of entrepreneurship onto all the people that we, that we work with now. But um, more recently, um, the whole sales thing, back in 2015, I was over in the UK and we were launching in Tesco and... Uh, Tesco said to me, okay, you can be down the back of the store, and if you know anything about the drinks business, you should be up, up front uh, in the fridges. So um, I was in London, and uh, I had a moped, and they wouldn't put me in the fridges for like two years, and I said, screw this, I'm going out there. Um, so I jumped on my moped in December 2015, and I drove around to all the Tesco's in my area, and I got into 50 Tesco's, and I stuck it on the shelf myself, and I, then I, I was too cold, and I hired a guy to do the rest of it. But uh, the results we got from that was I went back to the Tesco buyer and realized that Vithit was out selling 42 competitive products on Tesco shelves, and I went back to her, and I gave her the thing, and then we got listed in all the stores. So I guess, you know, I really enjoyed that whole selling thing, and I, I still, to this day, will go into stores and pack the shelves, if, you know, if, if Vithit's not on the shelf. I think you have to take it personally, which probably comes back to the, mm. the competitive side of being a rugby player and that kind of thing. You know? And that was 2015, but it's, it's all gone from strength to strength for you from then. Tell us about your international expansion, Australia, Dubai. Yeah, um, Australia was the more fun thing because uh, we, uh, myself and my wife and my daughter cut out last year for three months and went over to Australia to set it up. Um, and that was an amazing exper family experience. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're growing. The UK is our biggest um, growth, uh, growth area. And it's interesting list, listening to Brexit. We do have a production facility in the UK. So, I mean, the, the, the population of the UK isn't going to disappear overnight. So we feel that that's still a really, really strong area for us. Uh, we're growing very strongly in, um, in Benelux uh, region. We've got some really good distributors there. And then Iceland of all... They, they drink uh, three bottles of Vithit per person per year. I don't know what they're doing with it, but it's, uh, it's really popular there. And then the UAE and Australia as well. But um, it's, for us, it's all down to good distributors. Um, we know now that if we put Vithit on the shelf, after all these years of changing it and changing the brand name and all that kind of stuff and getting the taste right, we know now it's one of those products that if you stick it on the shelf, it'll sell. But you've just got to get it on the shelf. And everyone's trying to get on these shelves. So, you know, in Holland, for instance, trying to get on the, the shelf of the Tesco over there is called Albert Hein. I've been flown over there maybe six times, still haven't got on the shelf there, but we'll get there. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a long process. And to get to where you are now, did you have any backing or help um, along the way? We were actually self-funded um, up until, a uh, nice plug for AIB, up until AIB um, jumped on board, invested, um, well, they didn't invest us, but they, they gave us a business loan uh, about two months ago now. But uh, we were self-funded for the first almost 20 years of, of the business. Um, I kind of came from a background of what's wrong with making a profit. You know, if you look at businesses now, a lot of them will come straight out and lose money and go, I'll just go raise some more money and give away equity. I just didn't want to give away equity. It's like, to me, it's like handing your child over for someone to look after. You know, um, you're, you're giving away part of your future. And if you can hang on as long as you possibly can, why wouldn't you? So, um, yeah, I, I stuck at it. Um, it's, it's also easier now. It's easy to go crowdfunding. I have a friend of mine in the UK, and he raised £1.5 million. And I said to him, how did you do it? He has a few cafes. And he said, oh, I, I threw 30 grand into a, a really slick advertising, or a really slick camera, uh, cameraman and, and camera crew. And he said, and then the money just started rolling in. I mean, it's <laughs> bizarre. And, and, you know, I, I'm not sure if he's turned a profit or not, but he certainly got £1.5 million uh, to play with. So, yeah, we, we stuck it alone for a long time. And a lot of, a lot of um, financial institutions didn't want to know. I remember um, about three years ago, probably, sorry, about six years ago, I went to a bank and we just wanted to make sure that we could produce a little bit of extra. So we were, I don't mind telling the figures, we were turning over three million, which is not insignificant. And I went looking for an overdraft of 50 grand and we were turned down. Right. So needless to say, I never <laughs> went back to that bank again. And we won't ask you to name and shame no. that bank. <laughs> <laughs> You're remarkably successful uh, now for someone who has uh, what I would deem unusual views on the working day. You think that you probably only have five good hours in you in the day. 
Yeah, I, I, hands up, I'm not a workaholic. You know, um, I work best when I'm under pressure, um, which is, I guess, how I rescued, or well, we rescued the company together uh, when we were under the most pressure. I, I hire really well. Um, we don't have a, a good turnover, of, a huge turnover of staff. I don't think anyone has left us in the last four to five years. And what I do is, for instance, in England, when I had set that up, I got a young guy, he was an intern, he was only 26 years of age. And uh, I basically said, right, there's the business. You seem qualified enough, look after it, I'm going back to Ireland. And he was like, okay. And <laughs> now he, we've hired six people in the UK and uh, he's absolutely flying and he's now our commercial. I was going to ask you what yeah. became of the intern. But <laughs> yeah, no, he's now, he's now our, our commercial director over right. there and he's done a great job. And my hiring process, which basically, you know, I, I don't sit on people's shoulders and, and look after them day to day. It's not, it's not what, I, what I do. I like to have kind of mini entrepreneurs within our business. So we have people based in France, Australia, UAE. And what, what I do is I basically hand them the keys to the city and I basically say, right, we're now doing X amount sales. You need to get to Y amount sales. If you don't, you don't have a job. Um, and, and, this, these are the, and we'll be back here in Ireland. And we'll help you with social media, targeting, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you're, you're already qualified for the job. Just go do it. And if they don't do it, they lose their job. And if they, if they do it, they get great bonuses and they become the owner of their own destiny. So just go back to your question. What that does then is it enables me to work five hours a day. Um, you know, and sometimes it can be three. And, but the thing about it is, is I'm five hours a day, 100% on work. Um, but when I go home, I'm always checking emails. Um, I don't really get that stressed. Um, so you know, I, I annoy people at home sometimes when I'm on my phone. And I do cut it off eventually and do some family time or whatever. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm always on 20% and I'm 100% on for five hours and, and it works for me. Okay. And you were um, ahead of the curve, I think we can safely say, with the vid hit in 2000. So let's uh, call on you to be ahead of the curve again with predicting the next big things in that wellness space in the years ahead. Yeah, there's a few different things that are knocking on the door at the moment. There's CBD, um, there's uh, kombucha. I personally, we're, we're not getting involved in that because the reason why I got involved in Vitted was I saw a gap in the market. I don't want to be one of 100 companies coming out. And believe me, CBD, there's going to be hundreds of companies. You know, and Pepsi and Coke are getting involved in that, and I'm not getting involved in that bun fight. Um, I do, the health space is really going. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's seen, um, there's a, a Netflix show which is being paid for by, um, by Arnold Schwarzenegger and it's called Game Changers and they're talking about you know, moving towards a vegan diet and that's a really interesting thing. I just saw it two days ago and I had my first vegan, vegan day on Monday. Um, so that's, you know, those kind of things are having a big influence. I see two or three really good businesses here in Ireland that I really like the look of. Strong Roots you had on uh, here before. Um, and I really like, there's a chocolate company, they're alternative chocolate, they're non-dairy called Novo, and I think that they have a shot. Um, once they get good listings, I think they have a shot of, of doing it, because if you can have it, something like, you know, they're almost like the, the chocolate of Vitit, or the Vitit of chocolates, let's say. Um, you know, they've only got seven grams of sugar, and you know, your average chocolate bar is 28, so why wouldn't you try that? So yeah, I think they're, they're one for the future. I hope now you haven't given away your one to watch, for you <laughs> have to come up with a new one for the one. next I have few another minutes. One. I have another one. <laughs> well, we'll leave it there for that uh, amazing Trailblazer interview. Thank you so much. Gary Lavin, everybody. Thanks for having me. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, uh, some of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with All In. Uh, you should be by now, and you will be after this, I'm sure. But if you're not, we have a section called The One to Watch, and it's the who or what in Irish business our guests feel is uh, very important and one to watch uh, for the weeks ahead, and why. So we're going to start. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start with you, Gary, since uh, you're last off, first back on, and, and sure. closest to me. So why not, yeah. Gary? What is your one to watch? And you can't say CBD oil or kombucha. I want to say CBD oil. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, healthy takeaways was something that I couldn't believe hadn't happened uh, until about two or three, well, maybe five years ago. Um, like. You know, why, in order to get easily accessible food, did you have to go to a chipper or a McDonald's? You know, it just made no sense to me. Um, and obviously, I was uh, doing this. So I think um, that's going to be, it's kind of a present thing, but I think it's just going to keep getting. I see there's a couple of vegan restaurants opened up recently. Um, I think the one to watch as a company are probably Sprout. Um, they, I'm not sure if they're outside Dublin yet. Um, I really like, um, you know, they look great from the outside, the branding. Their product is fantastic. I eat it every day. Um, I, I don't even know the, the guys there, but I just love what they're doing, and I think they're a really strong one for the future. Okay, thank you very much. Alison? 
Well, I think um, he would have had to live under a rock to not uh, heard the word protein in the last uh, couple of years in the food industry, particularly in relation to um, health and wellness. But I think it's now straight into virtually every product category um, that there is. Uh, we're, we're making protein uh, biscuits and, and low-sugar biscuits, and, and that whole sphere is, is, is becoming more and more popular and, and requested. I mean, consumers are just you know very keen on increasing their level of protein on a daily basis. There's a company based in County Meath, which is taking that to a whole new level um, and they are looking at protein not from the traditional sources of beef bovine or or even um, milk proteins uh, they are raising um, millions and millions of insects and using that protein as a, a, a a constituent mm. in, in food and in animal feed particularly. Um, and there's some statistics around insect protein that I think are incredible. Um, have you tried it, Alison? I have. Um, Very good. What's so the verdict? Insect protein delivers um, 80 times less methane than beef protein. Uh, beef is about 29% protein. Cricket protein is 69% protein. So I think in terms of saving the world and all that we're hearing on sustainability, uh, insect protein is the way to go. There's a company in me, there's a say called Hexafly. Anybody interested in investing? I haven't yet, but I'm, I think anybody out there thinking about it, it's, it's one to watch. Okay, great. Insect protein, top that now, Niall. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'll be trying anytime soon. Actually, a lot of people... I'm, ac I'm accidentally vegan, so I eat meat, but everyone, when I buy stuff in the shop, just could just assume I'm vegan because I'm allergic to milk. So for years, I couldn't, I never had whey protein because it absolutely, I'm totally allergic to it yet. So rice and, and plant-based protein now are just like absolutely coming through. And obviously when it comes to protein, a lot of it isn't actually, collagen is overrated because as far as I know, you can't actually absorb that. Yeah. So there's a lot of... Be careful about the no dairy thing, though. Because, I know, yeah, um, you're going to say this, come on. There are so many people out there that are turning into... Uh, you know, major difficulties health-wise. Don't turn into Piers Morgan. Well, I, look, I, I, lots of women my age are in trouble now because we didn't drink enough milk, so I have osteoporosis, I have two teenage daughters, and I am just insisting yeah. they drink a lot of milk because dairy is not the enemy, and it is something calcium-wise we need in our diets. But if we don't find it from, find it from milk, we're not finding yeah. it in other areas, Alison so be careful about that. Alison mentioned that to me. I, I'm, I'm allergic, so I can't drink it. That's why I'm five foot seven and I stopped growing as soon as that milk didn't get absorbed. <laughs> so I totally agree with you on that. But... Uh, and also, I know Nobo as well. Fond of a tub of Nobo, um, I have to say. But Alison's right. I mean, dairy plays its part and will continue to play its part. So my one to watch is from our industry. Uh, it's rare I give credit to anybody in our industry. So I'll take the opportunity now while I can. So um, obviously, I think a lot of people have seen the business community. Tom Lyons and Inkyo have come up and set up their own business called The Currency. We were just talking about it backstage. Um, and I think this raises two interesting things. First of all, Two guys do public interest stories well, and public interest stories need to be done, but they don't do what I would call takedown journalism. And that is very rife in the Irish business community where there's medium set up to try and take people down and talk bad of business people. And this room is full of business people. And I think what the guys have brought is something new and interesting and fresh to the market. And the other interesting point it raises is this question I'm always asked about, what does the future hold for digital journalism, digital media? So. You know, is it branded content? Is it is it funded like tonight with or be able to do this tonight with, with thanks to AIB or is it subscription based? And for me it's not a mutually exclusive scenario. I think that both can coexist and coexist well. I think that what the guys hopefully will do is right size a media organization for the future. So can they bring a subscription model into Ireland? Can it do well and can it be successful? It can based on the number of people. Now if you're starting with two of the best business journalists in the country, you're off to a good start. So I wish them the very best. I think they're doing really good stuff. But I think it will actually show that the future of journalism can absolutely be subscription-based. But that model may not be applicable to a 150-year-old media institution that wants, that gives out that subscription won't pay, pays the bills, right? So the guys will hopefully prove that subscription uh, journalism can absolutely work. So I wish them the very best. And as I said, they don't take, take down journalism. They really are, are positive and have promoted lots of Irish entrepreneurs in their journey and will continue to do so. So that's the one I'll, I'll take from our space. And it's right. quite and, topical. Uh, and I'm just doing my own podcast on the currency. So thank you so much for the plug. Huh? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it's number two to all in, it's fine. Okay. okay. Three great and really different ones to watch there. So thank you very much. And now we're going to segue into another thing many of you who watch the show may know. We normally ask our trailblazer to do something we call overrated underrated which 
is pretty self-explanatory. We throw a few topics at them and ask them, is it overrated or underrated? This being the first ever live show, we've decided to go all out and shake things up a little bit and involve all of you. So I hope you're ready. The panelists here do not know what these topics are going to be, so they very much are going to be caught on, on the hop, as they say. Um, let's start with you, Niall. WhatsApp groups. Overrated, underrated, and why? Underrated massively, because it's the best way to keep in contact with everyone and know when they're last online, so whether they've read that very important <laughs> message you sent them. Love WhatsApp. Slack is probably way better, right? But I just, if I get onto another app, it just, uh, my screen time is like eight hours a day. So um, WhatsApp groups, absolutely underrated. Okay. Alison, internships. Oh, I think underrated. I got my first job as an intern when I was 17, and it led to a six-year job. Um, so I think once both parties are getting something out of it, interns are a really good way to show what you're made of. Um, I'm completely agnostic about exam results, 2-1, whatever the heck. I absolutely have no, um, no call for it. I'm much more interested in what a person does on the job. So I think un interns are totally underrated. Well, what do you think, Alison, of paid versus unpaid internships? Because obviously that's a thorny subject. Be paid at a certain level. I don't think you should, you know, I think if you've got somebody in and their job is to prove that they're, they're made of something and your job is to prove that you're good enough for them to work for you, both people need to get something out of it. Yeah. Um, we have some interns in the business on, on occasion who are going through college and need to have a placement. Um, I don't think they should work for nothing. We would do something nominal, but ultimately I think there's nothing better than showing what you're worth in a company and making the most of those couple of months. And as I say, for me, a three-month internship unpaid led to a six-year job, so I'm, I think... And considering Gary's yeah. former intern is now commercial yeah, director yeah. of the UK. No, it's interesting when Alison said I've never looked at an exam result, neither have I. And it's, I, I like to think that I would know certainly a salesperson if I meet them within five minutes. Um, there was a show recently um, and a, a, an Irish girl came up to us and she was working for Board Bia and she came up to me at a stand uh, in Germany and she basically said, oh, why aren't you in Paris? And I said, where are you from? She says, well, I'm from Dublin, but I live in Paris. And I said, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm selling for X, Y, and Z. And I said, do you want a job? And I just gave her the job straight away and she's now running France for us. So wow. I, did, I have no idea to this day whether she, she went to college. I still don't know. And I don't yeah. care because I just knew she'd be a good salesperson. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> well, on that note, meditation. Is your overrated, underrated? It's actually underrated. I, I don't do it anymore, but bizarrely enough, I, I used transcendental meditation years ago to make me, uh, to give myself better reactions uh, in rugby. And, and actually, I, ha I had times to prove that it actually improved my athletic performance, bizarrely. Okay. That was 30 years ago. Right. Cold calling, Niall. So whoever wrote these obviously put in the WhatsApp group for me, did they? It was not I. I've been thinking about this. Cold calling? Yes. Uh, oh, it's underrated. I mean, it depends on what type of business you're in, but if Gary wants to sell Vita to a shop, or Alison wants to sell East Coast Bakery stuff to a shop, they've got to pick up a call and have a conversation. And if we want to sell to direct clients, then we've got to pick up the call. So it's underrated. It's a forgotten skill. A lot of people don't know how to do it. A lot of people, sadly, coming to college are probably very, very fearful of the ideology of it. But I think a very, very good door opener is probably what I would suggest is vital to any business. So on that basis, I would say underrated. I think the okay. most important thing in business is sales. If you don't have sales, you could have the best engineers, accountants in your company. If you don't have, and that's what I learned. So I was sitting in the office really doing nothing, thinking I was doing something. And then when that person told me, get out and sell, suddenly we had a business. So if you don't, sell is num sales is number one in, in my book for everything. Were you meditating at the time? When <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meditating sales. <laughs> we'll keep it going here. Black Friday, Alison. What do you think? Black Friday. Oh, well, um, I think Black Friday is just a lot of hype. I think it condenses the business into a Friday when perhaps uh, it may have extended over a weekend or even a week previously. Um, I question whether there's real value in some of the offers that are there. And uh, yeah, I think it's completely overrated. Overrated. I think that's our first overrated so far. So we'll see now if we keep that trend going, Gary, with influencer marketing. Glad you asked me this. I would say overrated. Um, just specifically for Dublin, um, we got involved in influencer marketing about three years ago, just when it was kind of popping up. And we were just about to use this girl and uh, we were basically saying, okay, you're gonna do this on a Friday. And on the Thursday, she was selling Domino's pizzas. Now, Domino's pizzas, nothing wrong with them, but they're just not combined. They, they wouldn't combine very well 
uh, with our brand. So sure. we just kind of looked at it and go, I, I think influencers need to protect their own brand a little bit better. And I think they just need to see the type of person that they are and the type of products that they like and just not like influence everything. You know, you can't. So we use them the odd time in different countries as advertisers, not as influencers. Fair enough. Niall, Boris Johnson. <laughs> Is there a few, have you a few more options for me rather than that? Nope. Um, That's it. Or rated. Um, uh, it's a complete, like, I mean, what, what needs to be said here? I mean, what's funny about it is we're all just becoming accepting of lunatics running major countries and people who clearly should, shouldn't be in that position. What's funny in all this is that there is a tendency, because the UK is an absolute class, class baked into its very heritage, right? And there's always been a tendency that working class people are led by privately schooled or Eton College, the Tofts, exactly, right? And, and they're more trusting. So that's where you see people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, where he has a, what's called a trusting voice, and you can trust a well-educated individual. The real risk to the modern-day world is that how so many misogynistic, you know, racist, whatever type of individuals are well-educated and well-spoken. And I think Boris, jo Boris Johnson is hopefully going to be a very, very short-lived Prime Minister of, of the United Kingdom because he absolutely doesn't have Ireland's best interests at heart or the United Kingdom uh, individuals. He's just his own, so... Yeah. So he's overrated then, yeah? Slightly, yeah. I mean, I don't even think he's rated. I, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, Not just rated. waste of space. Um, yes. Alison, I'm going to skip you for a second because there's a food one I want to come back to you with, but I'm going to go to you now, Gary. Private schools, overrated, underrated? Yeah, from the guy who clearly with the Southside accent. She asked me that one, huh? The bar <laughs> A nice segue. Um, in Dublin, um, I, I have an opinion which might be divisive here. In, in Dublin, my dad is actually from around the corner here. Um, he grew up um, in, in a tough part of Dublin, and he ran a bar from the age of 14 when people used to do that, bizarrely. And um, he always said, when I was young, he said, what, he said, when I couldn't afford it, he said, I doubled up and I said, I put you into the best school I could possibly send you to and the best school I could possibly afford. Because he said, I don't want you ending up in a place like this. And I mean, you know, education wise, you know, I, I don't think it would have done, made any difference for me. But the people that I met while I was there have certainly helped my business journey. So I would always personally and it's nothing to do with the, the education that you're getting from, from various different schools. It's to do with the, the people that you grow up with. So, for instance, I, I still have a dodgy knee, and I can phone five of Ireland's top orthopedic surgeons, which is wrong, but if I want to get my knee sorted or my dad into hospital, which I did once my dad nearly died, it's another subject, um, I had a guy at the end of the phone, and I could get him in there. So the contacts that you can get for business and future life um, the private schools are actually very handy. And it's an unfortunate situation. It shouldn't be that way, but it just is. So, Going to push you for an overrated or underrated, though? Oh, don't do that. Um, I, I, I think underrated, I'd have to say. Okay. Uh, I, I actually have to, have to ring people occasionally. So I normally ring guards. And thankfully, been brought up in Mayo but in, a, in the public sector or whatever it was. There's lots of guards. And they help out now and again as well. But no, genuinely, on that, right, I think this is a Dublin kind of rest of the country scenario because I absolutely grew up, and I'm sure Alison will have a take on it as well, ignorant of class, right? So the richest person in Castlebar when I grew up was the manager of the hotel. Genuinely, right? I used to remember a guy, Ian Walsh, his dad was the manager of the Westport Woods Hotel. And I used to look at him going, oh God, they're loaded. Like, and that's, that's where he was. And the class divide is definitely in Dublin. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I actually probably became more acutely aware of class in Dublin and then obviously in the UK. So for night, when I grew up, there wasn't even a, uh, wasn't even a question. Um, and I think a lot of people have done well coming out of, you know, private education or out of public schooling. Uh, and I think there's a very, very good standard of teacher here. What's definitely what I can see now having a 10 year old boy going through school is the schools are unbelievably underfunded still. Like they hadn't money to, for, for their, this is in Ormore and Galway, so not exactly like, you know, a, a tough area or a rough area or a deprived area. They hadn't got money for their schools. So I would say that, you know, I won't really put an answer in that, but I would say that the public schooling sector in Ireland is probably one of our strongest assets 
when there's lots of other things going wrong with the country. Well, I'm going to go from very serious to uh, much lighter. Lots, there's been a lot of talk about wellness and health here uh, tonight, this evening, Alison, so no pressure on this one. Crisp sandwiches. Oh, I love crisp sandwiches, but it has to be white bread and real butter. Absolutely. Yeah. Does it have to be a particular brand of crisp? I, 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 I think crisp, I mean, I'm, I'm working in a sweet business, so clearly biscuits are about sweetness, but uh, I just don't think there's anything that beats a packet of crisps. I have a struggle every evening to not have a, a packet of Kiehl's crisps when I get home from work. With some, with some bit hit. Yeah, can't disagree with you there. Absolutely. <laughs> we only have one more to go, and it's just for you, Niall. I did not. I was going to answer the crisp sandwich <laughs> question because no, they're unbelievably <laughs> calorific. It's like 500 calories in a crisp sandwich no, by comparison to a burger. Yeah. No, I like, sorry, I didn't say I have a crisp sandwich every night. I said I oh, have no, a packet no, of Kyo's crisps, which is only 120 calories. So that's, that's okay. Okay, yeah. okay. I didn't write this. Go on. Male grooming. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't fairness now, I, the two of I them. Was, <laughs> the two of them. I was absolutely going for a little velvet number, which I'm prone to. <laughs> and then I went to the shop and said, "She's better put on a jacket, I suppose, you know." And then I saw Gary arriving, like an extra from Miami Vice. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Thank God, I put a blazer on me." So. In fairness, you can actually, I think whoever wrote the question had it in advance for me, but I think Gary would be much better off to answer it. But I'm going to say underrated. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you to Gary, Alison and Niall. Big round of applause, please. So that's it from us. I want to say a big thank you to our show partners, AIB, for backing all in. Thank you to you for being with us. We will be back in studio business as usual, no pun intended, for All In Business next week. Please hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Bye-bye. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business.